Good morning, church. Doing okay. Good to see you guys. Um, my name is Chad Kinser. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, uh, I serve as one of our pastors here, and it's a privilege to open God's Word with you today. If you've got a Bible, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the passage that was just read. That's where we're going to be. We're taking up week three in what's a long-term journey for us through the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you're looking for a place to read in your Bibles or to pick up in your personal reading time with family or your spouse or your community group, hey, take up the book of 1 Corinthians, ask questions of it, um, mark it, underline it, pray through it, bring your questions to our leadership, to your community groups. This will be where we're going to sort of rest for the next uh, lengthy period of time. And we believe that there's so much here for our formation and we want to we give ourselves to as much as this book would give us. And we believe God has a lot for us here. So I, I've actually got a lot of work uh, ahead of us in this sermon today. We've got a lot of work ahead of us, I should say, in this sermon today. So I want to jump into it. If you would please pray for me, uh, I'll pray for you and we'll see how God would shape us. Take a second there in your posture of prayer and, and silently just offer a personal prayer to God that he'd speak to you today. You'd hear his voice. Take a moment and ask for understanding. If you would, take a moment and pray for me that God's word would go forward in power and in clarity today. Our Father, we, we offer ourselves to you in this moment. And we come to you in the strong name of Jesus. And so we have a lot of confidence that you hear our prayer. Not because we're praying, but because we pray in Jesus' name. You've bent your ear to us, Father. You, you're, attentive, you're attentive to us because of the work of your Son, and we come behind him, we come in his name, we come with all of his merits and righteousness, and we ask that you would help us for the next half hour. Would you give us understanding to your word? Would it divide the places in our life to make sense of what you're calling us to and what we ought to drop from this world? How would you fill us and what would we leave behind? Father, grant us understanding. Center us on your son. Holy Spirit, lift us to have eyes for him. And we offer this prayer in the strong name of Jesus, our King. And we all said together, amen. Amen. Well, at the risk of stating the obvious this morning off the top, hey, the world is not as it should be. <laughs> That's not news that we, we, we know that. The world is not as it should be. But it's not just the world out there. It's not just the world out there, is it? Like the thing that we would observe from the world out there could also be said, of you and me, because after all, we're participants in the world. That it's not just that the world is not as it should be, that you and me, you and me are not as we should be. And I think that most of us recognize this intuitively from a young age. From a young age, we have a sense of this, this experience of guilt maybe, that from an early on in life, you had, you encountered, and if you can think back on it, you became in that moment like a little defense attorney sort of trying to find a defense for yourself or a reason for yourself, an explanation for your innocence and dignity. Maybe to sort of bring something more concrete here, think back to that moment when there was the plate of cookies that your mom had set out and told you that those were to be saved for later. But you took one anyway, <laughs> an encounter with, with guilt. Think back to a moment when a line was set there for you that you crossed anyway, and in your mind, you did these things, I did these things, because it's not that big a deal, it's just a cookie. My mom didn't count them. 
No, no, she did. She knew exactly what she was baking. It's not that big a deal. No one will see. No, no one will have to know. In my house, we have this island in our kitchen. It's butcher block countertop. And uh, we've told our kids multiple times, we're happy for you to get out the markers. We're happy for you to do arts and crafts here. Um, just make sure there's paper down so that we're not going full rage monster with the markers on the wood. We walk in a couple of months ago and someone had done just that. Green marker, full rage monster all across the butcher block. And so we bring in the criminal lineup, our four kids. We line them up. We had to just point out the evidence. This isn't a mystery here. Who done it, you know? Who done it? And so the older three look back at me and they're like, they're confused as to why I would even ask this question. I, I didn't do, I'm not an animal dad. I know how to put paper down. And my youngest, the five-year-old, just start, we didn't even ask it. We didn't even, we, who did it? They look back at me, you know, it was obvious we didn't do it. And he just starts going, I did not. <laughs> I, I did not. And his cadence to his speech, I, I did not. And he starts holding his hands out even harder, like, as if to plead his innocence. I, I did not. Starts crying. Green marker all over his forearms. <laughs> all over his hands. In his mind, I'm going to get away with this. We have moments like that where we feel like we get away with something. And yet there in your conscience, something bears witness that you know is true. That my son knew was true. Someone did see. Someone did see. Someone does know. And it's not just that you know what you've done. It's not just that you know who you are. You know that someone else knows too, even if you can't quite put your finger on who that is. And that's that sense even from early on in life that we fear the eyes of God. We fear the eyes of God. He sees when no one else does. And so from relatively early on, we know something of this need. We have this need for righteousness. We have this need that our conscience knows that we have to have a righteousness that we don't have. Where are we going to get it? And so we have to have a defense from the eyes of the one who sees when no one else does. We need a way to explain ourselves. We need a way to prove ourselves in the world. We need answers. We need answers, don't we, to life's deepest questions. What's the meaning of life? What's the meaning of death, identity, destiny, mercy, and judgment? We have to have answers to these questions. And so in this, it's in this effort to find a defense. It's in this effort to find an explanation, a righteousness for ourselves, that what we all start doing is grabbing for a wisdom. We start trying to find a wisdom in the world to give us answers. And so here it is. It's this reach for wisdom that all of us participate in that joins us to the Corinthian problem and the focus of our text today. We're picking up right where we left off last week with Paul confronting the church on their disunity. And last week we looked at the ways the church was divided and was split over pastors and leaders that had different preference. They had different preference for. But there's something deeper going on here that I want to show you from their historical setting that will help us sort of fit last week and this week together. There was this group of people in their moment that were very popular called the sophists. The sophists. And they got their name from the Greek word for wisdom, which is Sophia. And these were essentially traveling philosophers. One scholar explains them this way. Traveling philosophers were common in Greek society, each proclaiming their own brand of wisdom for life, explanation. And those with academic pretensions would attach themselves to one of these and to the school of philosophy they represented. And it was a form of one-upmanship. 
And so different groups would argue for superiority of their way of thinking and intellectual heroes. And so the sophists then were the equivalent of like influencers in our day. They were known to have disciples. They were known to have followers who were often intensely loyal to them and to their teachings. And each group would think themselves to be better than an opposing group that was attached to a different sophist. And so a common question in first century Corinthian culture was, who do you follow? What sophist have you attached yourself to? And this is something of sense of why they were saying last week, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulos, or I follow Peter. What was happening is that the ways of Corinth and the wisdom of their world was dividing the way of the church. And it was dividing the church's view of wisdom. And they were trying to find answers. They were reaching and grabbing for the same thing that my five-year-old's done, that we've done, they were doing, trying to have answers to those searching questions of life, of death, of destiny, the question of identity. And so this is where our passage picks up. Paul speaks up in an effort to call the church back to unity, and here's how he's gonna do it. He's gonna drive back to the core of what Christians have confessed and what makes us who we are. He's gonna do this call back to unity through the message of the cross. Pick up with me in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly, he says. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, this same message of the cross is the power of God. And so for Paul says, for all the ways that you are divided, you have to see that the world is actually already divided. And it's not because of the philosophies of different sophists and political teachers that you're attaching yourself to. It's not divided primarily that way. That's just the byproduct for all the ways we're grabbing for answers to those big questions. The world, though, Paul says, is primarily divided because of what God has done. The world is divided because of what God has done. It's split into two categories, perishing and saved. Those who are wasting away and those who are being repaired and saved. And the core of that division of those two categories is the cross of Jesus Christ. He says the message of the cross is completely nonsensical. The message of the cross is completely foolish. It's folly to those who reject it, which is why they reject it. And the cause of their rejection is perishing before the eyes of God. But on the other side, this same message of the cross is God's power and it's God's love to those who surrender to it. And they know that because there's salvation there. But think about this with me. This way of foolishness when it comes to God's redemptive works in the world isn't new at the cross. This is actually the way it's always been. The cross just makes it shine most brightly. Didn't it seem foolish in the book of Genesis Didn't it seem foolish for a man to build a massive boat on faith to survive God's judgment flood? It seemed so foolish that he was the only one who did it. And yet he was safe. Didn't it seem foolish to have a stuttering mediator be the one to go before Pharaoh and say, let my people go? And didn't it seem foolish when that same mediator said, let's flee from our enemies by way of the sea? Didn't it seem foolish? Didn't it seem foolish when God wanted the young shepherd boy from Bethlehem to be anointed king instead of his older brothers who were wiser, stronger, and better looking? Didn't it seem foolish when God chose him to be anointed king 
And then for that little boy to go out to the battlefield to defeat Goliath, who is the accuser and taunter of God's people. Didn't that seem foolish? And we could keep going down the list of God's redemptive works in the world that have always seemed foolish. So of course then, it would once again seem foolish to be told, listen, that God's power and salvation in the world is gonna come through looking on the death of that carpenter's son born from Bethlehem from the backwoods town of Nazareth as he's suspended there on a wooden beam. That's God's power in the world. That somehow if I lay my life on him, that his judgment that he endured is actually judgment in my place and for my sin. That somehow if I submit my life to him, that his death on that cursed cross would bear the curses of my sin. The way of God's wisdom and redemption in the world has always seemed foolish. It's always seemed foolish. Shines most brightly at the cross, but it has also always been the power of God for those who would trust it and are saved. And God has made it this way on purpose. God has intended that his redemptive works would look foolish to the world on purpose so that we would have to, that we would have to look away from ourselves and actually look to him. He's wanted it this way on purpose. Notice how Paul carries out this thought in verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And so Paul says, this is not a new idea. I'm pulling this from Isaiah 29 that God has always purposed. You're not gonna know God through your own efforts of wisdom. You're not gonna do it. It's not how it's gonna happen. He repeats this same idea in his own words in 21. For since... In the wisdom of God, the world is not going to know God through wisdom. It's not going to happen. And so Paul's saying to the church, it's being divided. It's being polarized by the various wisdoms of its day. He's saying this, you've got to stop playing by the world's rules. When you're trying to find those deep answers to questions, you've got to stop playing by the world's rules. You've got to stop splitting over the answers that they have to those questions. Because God has done something that is ultimately divisive through the cross of his son. You realize everything hinges on the cross of Jesus. Everything hinges. It's not just that everything hinges in biblical history on the cross of Jesus. Everything hinges on across all of history, period, on the cross of Jesus. And so he's gonna go on in verse 20 to ask these searching questions. And this is where we're gonna feel this connect to our moment. He says, where is the wise one? Where, where, where is the scribe? Where's the, where's the philosopher? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Here's what Paul's saying. If it were possible to get answers to those big questions of life and death and identity and destiny, if it were possible through the wisdoms of this world to have answers, then why don't we have them by now? Where is the scholar? Where is, stand up. If you've got airtight answers, where's the wise one? Where, where, where's the debaters? It's a rhetorical question because the answer is, well, Paul, <laughs> the ones who claim to have answers to these questions, they're simultaneously everywhere, but they've led us nowhere. Everyone's got something to say, but few people are actually leading anywhere. Isn't it true that we're more educated than we've ever been, but we're not more moral? If we could just have people more education, then, then utopia. We're more educated than we've ever been, but we're not more moral. 
We've got more economic resources than ever before, but that hasn't served to make us more generous. We've got more communication technologies than ever before, but we're not connected in meaningful ways. We've actually used the the communication technologies to be more polarized. So what happens when the messages of the moral revolutionaries, with their wisdom in our moment, actually turn back on them, and what they've told us would be liberating actually turns out to be harmful? One cultural commentator around sexual ethics said it this way. It's interestingly apparent to me that we're approaching a critical cultural moment, a deep questioning of the sexual morality that's arising, not just from the traditional religious spaces that have always questioned the sexual revolution, but this questioning is also coming from the heart of feminism and mainstream cultural commentary. That at the core of this cultural moment is the realization that one of the more popular trends of the last 60 years, the notion that sex can be both casual and recreational so long as both parties enthusiastically consent is fundamentally at odds with our human nature and our most profound moral needs. What he's driving at is that we've been told that through pleasure and self-discovery and manifesting our own truth that we could actually arrive at God's purposes for life, at least God as we want to define him, or we've been told that through those things we actually don't need God, he can be rejected altogether, and through our own pursuits achieve our own God-like knowing, sort of becoming gods unto ourselves, as one popular author has put it. But the problem with all of that is that the wisdoms of this world They've certainly given us more deconstructionist ideologies than we've ever had, but what is their fruit? What is the fruit of the wisdoms of this world? We're more confused. We're more anxious. We're actually more polarized and fragmented, and we're less trusting. We're less trusting. And so Paul stands here in this text to drive them then and us now away from this lowercase w wisdom of the world And he's driving us back to the core of God's power that's united man back to God and man to each other. The cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus. Pick up with me in 22. He says, for Jews, they're going to demand signs. And Greeks, they're going to seek wisdom. But here's what we do. We preach Christ crucified. The wisdoms of this world are going to say all kinds of things and they want all kinds of answers, but we're going to preach Christ crucified, which is a scandal. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's complete folly to Gentiles. And so Paul here is saying, I'm not so much stressing about how the message is delivered. We could probably talk about that, but let the content of God's uppercase W wisdom, let it be plain and clear. The wisdom from God is Christ crucified. It's Christ crucified. So what God has offered us is not a competing philosophy for the world. He's not offered that. Instead, what God has offered is a person with whom you and I have to deal. That's what he's offered. So Christ crucified. Hey, just listen to that phrase. Christ crucified. It almost sounds oxymoronic, doesn't it? It almost sounds like a contradiction of terms. If he's really the Christ... Then, then he can't be crucified. That was the scandal to the Jews. God can't die. Christ, that's a, that's a contradiction of terms. But on the other side, since he was crucified, 
can he really even be the Christ? This was the foolishness to the world. He couldn't save himself. How much is he supposed to save me? But here's what's happening. In this seeming weakness and foolishness of God, in the dying son, in Jesus, he has absolutely obliterated the strength and wisdom of this world because at the cross of Jesus, lean in with me, at the cross of Jesus, our deepest questions find their answers. Let's go back to identity for a second. For all the ways we're reaching and grabbing identity in a crucified Messiah, you don't have to go discover yourself. You don't got to go on a quest to find yourself. Here's what's happening in a crucified Messiah. God has come looking for you. That's what's happening in Jesus. God's come looking for you. He's taken notice of you. Hey, listen, a crucified Messiah suggests you're not an accident. You're not an accident. God's done something. The questions of love and judgment. At the cross of Jesus is this beautiful place where justice and mercy kiss. So the answer that your conscience knows that you need from an early age, the the answer to my five-year-old with green marker all over his arms, that he knows that he needs, questions of love and judgment. Here's what's happening at the cross. You are fully known. What do I mean by that? God sees God sees all the stuff you've tried to cover up. God sees it, and God has judged. God doesn't swipe it under the rug. He's judged in plain public sight at the cross of Jesus. But it's also true, God has judged, but you're also fully loved. Because judgment falls on the head of another, and his righteousness is offered to you. And so when the judge forgives, you're really forgiven. You're really forgiven. Questions of life and death and destiny. Here's what's happening in a crucified Messiah. A precious life has been offered for you. So when you have these questions of life and death and destiny, here's what the answer is in a crucified Messiah. Your life matters. It matters to God. He sent his son after all. Your life matters to God. Your life belongs to God. And the questions of meaning and destiny are most understood in a life of service offered back to God. Christ crucified. Deep questions with deep answers. This is why Paul says in 25, for the foolishness of God, the seeming foolishness of God is actually wiser than men. All the wisdoms of men, than the foolishness of God, it's wiser. And the weakness of God and its seeming defeat of Jesus at the cross is actually stronger than all the attempts of men to build a scaffolding of answers. Christ crucified. Paul keeps moving in this passage, and here's what he's going to do in the second half. He's going to bring some resolve for what this means for you and me as a people. Christ crucified, what does that mean for us as a people? The message of the cross shapes us as people of the cross. The message of the cross shapes us as people of the cross. Pick up in 26. He says, for consider your calling. Not many of you are wise by worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful and not many of you are of noble birth. Paul's saying, for all your attempts to find a superior wisdom as though you're somebody special in the world to cause divisions in God's church, Remember where you came from. It's like he's holding up a mirror to the church and go, hey, when's the last time you guys were a special group of people? You're quite unimpressive, actually. He's holding up a mirror to us. The same is true for you and me. Who are you to divide God's church? 
He's saying, remember where you came from, but also remember how you got here. Before you move on to a higher wisdom as though I'm gonna leave behind this message of the cross, remember that it was actually through the foolishness of this message that you first met God. The foolishness of this message was the way you were introduced to God. It's not because you were a high and mighty person that somehow you needed this introduction. You were actually introduced to God through this foolish message because you weren't high and mighty. Go on in verse 27. For God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He's not speaking in terms of foolish things. He's speaking in terms of categories of people. For God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God is choosing the overlooked, the outcasted. He's choosing the pushed aside to actually shame the wise and the strong, of which you're a part. Of which you're a part. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not the nobodies, to bring to nothing the things that are, the somebodies that think they're really somebody when actually before God they're a nobody, but God's chosen the nobodies to show them something of that. And he's done this, verse 29, so that no human being would have a boast in the presence of God. So here's what Paul's doing. He's trying to humble the church in order to bring a new formation as a unified people. One of the questions, one of the questions that this passage provokes and it answers is this. If the message of the cross is as foolish as we're reading it to be, then how is it that any of us are saved? If the message of the cross is that foolish, then how did it ever dawn on any of us that it was the wisdom of God? Like if the message of the cross is that foolish, then how did any of us start to see it differently than as foolish? How, how did that happen? How is anyone saved? Well, clearly, clearly he's just said, you're not saved because you're particularly wise or strong. That's not why you're a Christian. It's not because you're particularly good so as to make God think, well, I need to save that person. I need to help them see that this isn't so foolish, but it's actually wise. I need to save that person because they're really good. I need them on my team. That's not, that's not why you're saved. And you're also not saved because you're more predisposed to understand spiritual things and accept them more than the next person. That's not why you're a Christian. Hey, hear this. According to this passage, your salvation if you've looked to Jesus and my salvation and the salvation of any person who's ever turned to the message of the cross of Jesus has nothing to do with you. You didn't pull yourself up. You didn't figure it out. The message of foolishness of the cross didn't just go, yeah, but I think there's some secret. No, 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 no. It has nothing to do with you, but it is entirely the work of God. I want you to notice the repeated language of this passage. It'll be on the screen. Verse 24, but to those who are called. Verse 26, but consider your calling. Not something that you had, something you received. Verse 27, he says two times, but God chose. Verse 28 again, God chose. Verse 29, because of him you are in Christ Jesus. Remember how you got here, Paul is saying. How is it that you landed in Christ Jesus? Paul is in some sense here trying to help you and I understand our testimony. God opened your eyes. God helped you to see. You didn't make up the message of the cross, but the message of the cross is making something out of you. You didn't lay claim on a crucified Christ, 
but the Father, through the work of his Son, has laid claim on you. The message of Christianity is not trying harder or doing better. Instead, it is Christ crucified, and because of the work of God's Son, he calls, he chooses. It's because of him. And so this is why he says, if there's any boast, if if someone's gonna brag, let it be bragging before God. Let it be bragging in God. Listen, I have no other reason I have no other reason to explain why I'm a Christian than God did it. No other reason. God did it. He collided with me. He messed me up. He helped me see something that I would otherwise think to be foolish as power and wisdom. My track record, I think yours is probably similar to mine, that apart from God, I will run in every other direction but God. That's my track record but he becomes our boast. Why? Because this is about his love, his mercy, his work, his son, this whole thing. If there's any salvation, it's all of him. All of him. What other reason, what other reason could we possibly have as to why we're Christians than that the man on the middle cross helped me to see? What other reason do I have? How did I land here? The man on the middle cross helped me to see. This is why Paul says in verse 30, Christ Jesus, he has become for us. Because God has intervened on us, he has become for us wisdom from God. And with the wisdom from God of Christ crucified, he just throws in the whole kitchen sink. You get righteousness, a covering. You get sanctification, a holiness. You get redemption, a new story. Wisdom from God. And so if this is true, There's no place for pride. There's no place for pride, especially the kind of pride that would cause us to divide. Here's the logic. If our God was crucified for us in weakness, and he was, if our God was crucified for us in weakness, then what ought that to mean for the way that we treat each other? What ought that to mean for the way that we treat each other? means at least two things from this passage. Number one, there is no boasting. Christ crucified sounds like a contradiction of terms. It's not. I'll tell you what is a contradiction of terms. Proud Christian. That is a contradiction of terms. There is no boast. You didn't get here. You were brought here. So the message of weakness and folly reaches down to people like us, left to ourselves, who are actually weak and foolish And then it makes us righteous, sanctified, and redeemed. And this is the power of God. And the second thing it means is there's no more grounds to divide. You didn't call yourself. You didn't create the church. So who are you to divide it? The cross created the church. The cross called you. And the cross makes us a new and unified people. And so maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. You're a skeptic, a doubter, trying to figure out the claims of Christianity, and you're hearing this, God chose, God called, God, and you're wondering, well, how do I know if I'm called, or how do I know if I'm chosen? That's the question you're asking. I feel like I'm on the outside. Is there any possible way? That's probably not the question that's the best to ask. Instead, I think the question is, Instead of am I called or chosen, the question is, do you see Jesus 
as the power and the wisdom of God? Do you see Jesus and his cross as the power and the wisdom of God? Do you see Jesus as one who can cover your sins? That's the better question. Let me tell you why. Because if the answer is yes to Jesus, then that is evidence of God calling you. How else would you get to that conclusion? If you can see Jesus as God's wisdom and God's power, that's God's wooing, that's God's calling, that's God's choosing, that's evidence that he's bringing you outside to inside. After all, he is the friend of sinners. He's the friend of sinners. And you're like, well, I don't know if I can say yes today, so does that mean I'm not? No, 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 that, don't, don't walk away with that conclusion. If you've got questions about this Jesus, questions about his claims, we would be honored to take those up with you. Hey, let's, let's actually consider what's happening here and see what God, here's what I know about God. He is still saving people like crazy. He's still choosing people like crazy. He's still choosing people who you would think never would otherwise be chosen. I, for one, in that story. From backgrounds that you would think, well, that's of no, 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 no. He's choosing the weak of the world to shame the strong. This is what God is doing. The message of the cross weak and foolish as it may be, is the power of God to call out for himself and to create for himself a people shaped by the cross. And so church, this is our banner, Christ crucified. This is our message, for we could have no other. God has done this. We can't create for ourselves what Christ alone is for us. This is the finish. The wisdom of God to save through a crucified Messiah. It's our righteousness, it's our covering, it's our holiness, acceptance before God, and it's our redemption, a new story. God has intervened. And so church, we have a boast today. You and I actually do have something to brag about, and it's not crimson and cream. We have something to boast in, it's not orange and black. We have something to boast in, and it is this, Christ crucified. That is our boast. That is our unity. And that's the message of our God, the power to save. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you save. Thank you that your arm is not too short to save. Thank you that... Thank you that saving and calling and choosing and putting salvation on the table is what you do. God, thank you that you take blind eyes and to help them to see. You take dead hearts and help them to come alive to the message of your son's cross. And so, Father, I think I would ask that for anyone here who is not sure what they think about the message of the cross, would Holy Spirit, would you draw them out to just ask you to help them to see. God, would you show yourself powerful and mighty through what would otherwise seem to us weak and foolish. God, thank you that it is your power to save and thank you that you draw a church together. We wanna say, Jesus, with the church throughout all the ages since the resurrection, you are our banner. You crucified is our hope. You crucified is our wisdom. You crucified makes sense of how you address identity and destiny and love and judgment, life and death. 
So Father, would you have us, would you form us, the message of the cross, with people of the cross. We offer this prayer in Jesus' name.